Bodhisattva should look at samsara, they see it as completely disgusting. Nothing desirable in it. And not just nothing desirable and disgusting, but actually terrifying. Because the dukkha in samsara is so continual, so unrelenting. And so they have very, very strong determination to be free. At the same time, they see that other sentient beings are equally caught in cyclic existence in samsara, undergoing the same horrors, and they have compassion for the sentient beings that wants them to be free of the dukkha, the misery, the suffering, the unbearableness of samsara. And Bodhisattva's compassion is so strong that they're willing to give up their own nirvana, to stay in samsara, if it would be of the greatest benefit for sentient beings. So what they want most, nirvana, they're willing to sacrifice in order to benefit sentient beings. So you've got to really be seeing sentient beings as very worthwhile to have that much compassion that you're willing to do that. It's not some ordinary kind of, oh, people are nice, but really seeing them in beauty, really seeing them as lovable. And yet a Bodhisattva knows that even though they're willing to sacrifice their own nirvana to benefit sentient beings, they know that it's best if they attain full enlightenment because then they'll have the capabilities to be of the greatest benefit. And so as part of the cause for attaining that enlightenment, they appear again and again in all different sorts of forms all throughout cyclic existence in order to be a benefit to sentient beings. So it's as if they dive into cyclic existence with great joy because they see benefiting sentient beings as so pleasurable like yippee here's somebody I can be a benefit to even if it means going to the hell realms or who knows where they do that very joyfully because their compassion makes their mind very strong very courageous And they don't get discouraged by what they encounter as they're trying to benefit sentient beings. So no matter how unappreciative, how outlandish, how awful sentient beings act, bodhisattvas don't give up. They keep hoping. So it's good for us to set a strong intention to become like these noble bodhisattvas, doing the compassionate deeds they are, meditating on emptiness as they do, in order to attain enlightenment, in order to benefit all these incredible sentient beings were caught in all their confusion, 
act outlandishly and yet who are so kind and lovable. you have a sense of how bodhisattvas actually react in situations quite the opposite way to the way we do. Like when we see sentient beings, you know, under the control of afflictions, doing all sorts of stupid, ridiculous things, how do we react? We get mad. Stupid people, why are they doing this? Don't they have a brain in their head? Okay, so we get angry, and then especially if we're trying to benefit them, then we just get flat out disillusioned. Forget them! (laughs) It's like, they're just too much. Forget them. So bodhisattvas react in the complete opposite way of, you know, having a courageous, strong mind that just keeps going, no matter how outrageous sentient beings are. And at the same time, bodhisattvas conceive sentient beings as lovable and kind, because you think how your whole existence depends on the kindness of sentient beings and what they do and you know, the food and the clothes and the shelter, everything we have, everything comes from sentient beings. So then, you, you know, they, they feel the kindness of them. Now, when we usually, when we feel the kindness of sentient beings, you know, when there's people who are kind to us, how do we react? Attachment, yeah. don't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, somebody's nice to me. Mm. They're a wonderful person. I want to please them. I don't want to disappoint them. I care about what they think about me. I better remodel myself to make myself what I think they think I should be. You know, and we get into all these things of, you know, all the things that, all the hoops that we invent to jump through in our attempts to please other people or win their favor, get them to love us. Okay. So we do that, and bodhisattvas just see their kindness and instead react to it by jumping into samsara to benefit them. Yeah. So like completely the opposite. Yeah. And, and bodhisattvas will look at those kind mother beings. They can look at a kind mother being and see that they're incredibly kind incredibly lovable and they're at the same time incredibly deluded you know so you know we we make everything black and white they're so deluded cross them off they're so lovable ah, we'll be with them always bodhisattvas can hold both things you know these Indian beings are amazingly deluded and they're also incredibly kind yeah and they don't find any of that contradictory. They can hold it both. And their mind doesn't wobble around. You know, oh, I can't stand them, get me away. Oh, I want to please them so they love me. Bodhisattva's mind doesn't wander. Bodhisattva knows exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And sentient beings can say this, and sentient beings can say that. And bodhisattvas go, very nice, I'm doing this. Because their mind's completely clear, you know. So they're not moved by the aversion and the attachment the way we are, you know. And they are confounded by all the distorted views that we have. So I think sometimes just thinking about what a bodhisattva's mind is like, you know, it gives us an idea of 
how we want to train our own mind and how we want to bring what they're like into our life and into uh, how we make decisions, how we relate to people, what we think is important. I remember Venerable Rabina once saying that a Bodhisattva walked into a grocery store. Their understanding of the kindness of sentient beings would put them literally prostrating down the aisles in gratitude <laughs> for the of all the people who had put the food up on the shelves and the lights in the building. The whole dependent arising would appear to them to where they would just go to their knees in, in gratitude. Mm-hmm. It's always been kind of a very struck image because when I go to the grocery store, I just look for my favorite stuff, you know. (laughs) Yes. Totally different way of relating to things. So what's coming up in your meditation this week? What's coming up for you? Oh, good. You're back to death and impermanence. Good. And um, I think uh, it's been triggered by the dedications that we've been making this week. The people who've been sick. Yep. People who have been, you know, brothers. I mean, it's just. And to see how death. I mean, we're all different ages, we're all different socioeconomic, we're all different intelligences, we're different genders, we're different uh, views, different um, goals in life, and we're all just getting older, getting sick, and dying. And we're under the control of afflictions, too, at the same time. So we've either got the physical suffering, or we've got the mental suffering, and there's just no way around it. And then there's that whole piece about how can I take their suffering and use it to deepen my renunciation and to deepen my sense of that this life is indeed fleeting. And how do I spend my day? And how do I spend my sessions? How do I spend my life? So that whatever pain and suffering that they are experiencing is that it becomes a benefit. It becomes something that that helps. Even though they may not be intending that, mm-hmm. I want in my heart to take their suffering as something to, to make it fruitful for me to take advantage of that so they're not, it's not being squandered or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at the same time knowing that, you know, who is it that's actually suffering? You know, because I think what happened for me is that with, with, um, some of the folks this week, because I have very strong affection for some of them, mm-hmm. that I could find my mind going into the, the attachment and mm-hmm. then getting into the memories and reminiscing and things like that. And mm-hmm. say, There's nobody there yet. I mean, there's this, this body that's, you know, trying to use an emptiness meditation so to sort of keep my keep me from going into the attachment. Mm-hmm. You know? And that there are they're experiencing something that you are also experiencing at this time, although it's not as pronounced. Mm-hmm. And you're all basically on the road to dying. So I've been really trying to make it a, a fruitful week in that, and, and it's helped me bring my mind back about it being very, very distracted. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that, that this week we've had a lot of requests for prayers from people that we've had very strong connection with, you know, and the almost suicide of the brother of somebody that we're close to, the, you know, operation of somebody else with something very serious, another friend going into the hospital for an angioplasty completely unexpected, another one having surgery, I mean, just... This week's been fairly intense, and so you're saying that your mind was like going towards attachment towards some some of the people, and so on one hand, remembering that there's actually nobody there, 
there's a body and a mind and you label it a person but there's actually no one there yeah really to hang on to to be attached to and at the same time wanting what they're experiencing to impact you in a positive way so that their suffering hasn't been in vain in other words that even though they've experienced some suffering somebody's derived some benefit by it uh, by us transforming it and using it to boost our dharma practice mm-hmm. and to be really inspired by um, you know the insights that they have had about you know beautiful life beautiful friends beautiful mm-hmm. money beautiful garden beautiful seashore and here I am in this hospital room and all I had is my practice mm-hmm. <laughs> you know everything else is not here and um uh, yeah. there's no escape I mean that was the thing that came up for me there's no escape yeah right there's no escape and what I was thinking a lot about that too because finally one of these friends has the perfect life you know after a lot of time everything finally career and school and partner and beautiful living space everything's great and then she realizes she can't escape from sickness aging and death and, and there it is yeah. and that that situation is also our situation yeah. and one day you know we're going to be sick or dying or we're going to be in that hospital bed and other people are going to do prayers for us or you know they, they remember if they're not too distracted <laughs> whatever <laughs> Yeah, but the, what what our friends are experiencing is our own future experience. So not to be complacent. And like you said, that when that happens, I mean, really, all you have is your practice. All you have. You know, when you're miserable, nobody else is is there who can who can take it away from you. And so we've got to be able to deal with it ourselves. And the only way to deal with it when it's happening intensely is to train before it happens intensely, which means now. And so that's why they they say that um, the death meditation is so important for Dharma practice because it's important at the beginning to to spur us to practice in the middle to keep us practicing and in the end to encourage us as well uh, because otherwise our our um, distorted perception our vision of inherent existence you know of only this life we just get caught in it so easily you know one minute we'll have a handle on death and impermanence and a split second later boy we're running after pizza mm-hmm. and uh, and that understanding just it doesn't stick mm-hmm. yeah the mind just so easily gets into but what about my happiness now you know and X, Y, and Z is scary and it's frightening and I don't want to go near it you know I want what makes me feel good now and so the whole life can go by that way the entire life goes by and then the thing is when we die you know there's no way to like press the rewind button and say oh I wish you know you get to death and it's like wow you know all I have is a stockpile of you know a scrapbook with all my photographs that I have to leave behind you know and and a stockpile of you know all the grudges that I hold from the people who disappointed me and you can't you know no dharma practice there to sustain the mind to make the mind joyful or happy or purposeful and so essentially freaking out and at that time you know like how can anybody help mm-hmm. yeah we can't even help ourselves 
Yeah, so that's why it's so important to practice right now and really deal with things right now. When you look at our teachers, they meditate on death every day and they're happy. You know, we think about death and it's like, ooh, ooh, about that. But I remember many years ago when Yeshina Ondarki was teaching the 400, just this fantastic text by Aryadeva. There was a whole uh, chapter in the 400 about impermanence. And then Ramachai would teach us in the afternoon and then I'd go back to my room and meditate each evening. And, and so, you know, having very strong meditations about that. And I found that my mind got so peaceful and calm then. You know, it wasn't depressing at all. My mind was so calm. My neighbor blared her radio. Didn't bother me. You know? I was like really broke. I hardly had any money. Didn't bother me. No, my mind was just so peaceful because when when you really think about impermanence and death, then it reminds you of what's important. When your mind stays on what's important, then there's no space for all this other stuff that makes us so miserable to think about that doesn't get us anywhere. Meditation on death isn't designed to get us to uh, to be scared, you know, panic, freaked out. You know, we do that all by ourselves. Yeah, but the meditation is really designed to help us see what's important and to act on it, so that we have a happy life and a good death. Because when this life ends, we're gone. Totally gone. You know, children doesn't exist anymore. Completely gone. You know, the whole ego identity, person, whatever, you know, just gone. So, you know, the mind stream continues on. There's a new person. The general eye continues on. But children's finished, you know? Like this, children finishes in one breath. Yeah, quite fragile. And yet we have, you know, oh, I want to die well, and I want people to appreciate me when I die, and I want to look good when I die, and I want people to handle my body properly when I die. I'd be buried in an expensive casket that is suitable for somebody of my stature. And a funeral that is suitable where people can express how wonderful I am. You know? I mean, we're so attached to... And we're not even going to be around. You know, we're finished. Yeah, it's interesting to go to cemeteries and um, look at people's uh, monuments. Sometimes they are kind of like monuments or tombstones. Yeah. People have spent thousands and thousands on mm-hmm. <laughs> falling apart and the flowers and the long leaving flowers. <laughs> it's funny though, I mean, because how you just said that, and at the same time, you know what I try to do is somebody, so you, you know, you've had all these people that you've known really, really well. Right, um, with some things coming on or with yourself, but to me, I find it more very helpful to not um, respond to it in the way that my mind says I should respond to it. Like, oh my gosh, how could that happen? Of course it's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So is that a piece of training, not responding, not responding in a way that makes, where your mind is saying, how could that happen, or this can't happen, yeah. or... But sort of just trying to look at it like, well, this is going to happen. Yeah. Okay, so you're asking about how we respond. Because sometimes our usual reaction is, how can this happen? It's not supposed to. Yeah, yeah. or, yeah. And, and actually, it is supposed, it is supposed to. to. From the moment <laughs> yeah. that we were conceived, 
we're heading towards death. So of course death is supposed to happen. We started the you know we started the ball rolling by taking the the rebirth. And so I think it's quite helpful actually to think of the people that we know and care about dying, to think of ourselves dying, and just get used to it that that it is going to happen. You know, when I was talking with my sister this last week, you know, because. My mom's still not well and not taking good care of her, you know, her health and all. And my sister's very afraid that, you know, she's just going to get a phone call because she lives closest to my folks. And I said, Bob, and you know, basically, unless we die first, or unless we're there when it, when they die, we're going to get a phone call. There's no, there's no way to not get that phone call. Yeah unless you die first or unless you happen to be there at the time that they're dying mm-hmm. and they don't need to call you yeah and so to, to really accept that that's just the reality of it yeah and so when it happens then it's like oh yeah I'm prepared this, this is going to happen And so we think about it, not in a way where we get all worried. You know, oh dear, this person I love is going to die. I'm so worried about them. You know, oh, I don't want them to step outside the door. They might get hit by a truck. Not like that. But just recognizing, you know, this is the reality of the situation. I love watching it when, you know, my mind is like looking towards the future and I'll say to myself, oh, I hope such and such happens. And then I remind myself, what I hope has nothing to do with reality. (laughs) I can hope for whatever. It has nothing to do with reality. You know, let go of the hopes because (laughs) it's all about creating causes, not having hopes. death we're only looking on the outside mm-hmm. yeah you don't know what's going on the internal experience of the dying person mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. you don't know what the internal experience is and also even though people might say oh they died very peacefully even the people in the room might be internally freaking out <laughs> yeah So, you know, we, we never even know. But whatever it is, peaceful, not peaceful, craving and grasping, unless you're a liberated being, you know, unless you've seen emptiness directly, craving and grasping come at the time of death, make some karma ripen, mm-hmm. and that throws you into a next life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens? That's what happened. This life, bye-bye. You know, then the mind craving and grasping for existence has a vision some kind of karmic vision something looks good you know and you head for it mm-hmm. yeah, 
um, his intellect is getting in the way of his understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and that's the man thing, because he just goes on and on, and the Buddha keeps explaining to him, <laughs> and then he keeps asking another question and trying to find something that that, that is unfindable. And so I'm wondering then, because a week ago I was thinking I need to really study these things and really learn these things, and then I started reading the scriptures, and then on the on of these just full ridiculous questions, even Ananda, you know, he was just great. Um, whatever, and I, they just kind of an our hide in here. But you know, his intellect clearly is getting in the way of his understanding. So then I was thinking, and you know, at the end of the the fun generation, um, or it says, feel like you um, have great compassion, loving kindness, bodhicitta. Um, and I thought, you know, you couldn't learn about those things, really, even if you wanted to, to study all the texts on how to develop on love. Just take one of them, or compassion, to study it your whole life. But it's really, if you have, you have to have that experience of it. Mm -hmm. The studying really is useless in that way. Okay, there's, there's, so you're, you're in this, this quandary about what role does intellect play and what role does study play and what role does thinking play because in Dharma you're actually headed for experience and you can learn all this stuff that you want to but that doesn't mean you have any experience to show for it. Right. Yeah. Or even understanding really. Or, or even understanding. Right. Yeah. So that's why they talk about the three wisdoms. Wisdom of they call it wisdom of hearing, but it's kind of actually the wisdom of learning, wisdom of reflecting, and wisdom of meditating. Okay. When we're meditating, we you know there we're trying to really integrate and have an experience in our hearts. Okay, and go beyond concept. But you can't just jump to doing that because these experiences have to be cultivated. You know, they're created by causes. So if we want to cultivate the cause to experience compassion or to realize emptiness, then we have to learn how to do that. And so then you go back to the wisdom that's developed through hearing. And that's how, why you learn, you know. And you listen to teachings and you learn all these things, how to do them, how to think about them. Then you go to the middle one of reflecting or contemplating and you, you think about them and you get the correct understanding. And then you go to the third one of meditation and try and integrate it in your mind. Okay? But if, like, it's true. I mean, what you were saying, you could read all the books you want to and never have an ounce of compassion. Does that mean reading books about compassion is useless? No. Because how are we going to generate compassion? Do we just sit there and go compassion, compassion, compassion? That's not going to generate compassion. We have to learn how, we have to learn exactly what compassion is, and we have to learn how to generate it. Because if we don't learn that properly, then instead of compassion, we're going to fall into sentimentality, mm -hmm. and we're going to mistake sentimentality for compassion. And then we'll have a lot of experience, but it's not going to be an experience on, of the Bodhisattva. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, it's this thing, if you know, having to integrate these three, we really need the three of learning and reflecting and meditating. All three. You know? And none of them are sufficient in themselves. Because we have to learn. But just learning doesn't give you the experience. You need to think about it, you know, and get the correct understanding. But if you don't do the learning and the thinking about it and you're trying to go for the experience, hey, our mind comes in any kind of what experience. It can't it. You know? We sit down and, you know, we can like think we're levitating. We can think all sorts of stuff. I mean, our mind is so creative thinking stuff. Yeah? But that doesn't mean it's Bodhisattva experience. No, but even there, I mean, thinking you're levitating, I mean, that's clearly not... No, but you can feel that you're going out of your body, you can feel that you're floating backwards, you can feel, you know, I can feel all sorts of stuff. But, you know, but going back to, you know, you have to learn about these things and you have to hear about uh -huh. them and reflect on them and think about them and then meditating. So there's the experience, I think, of... 
that you can, you know, meditating is sort of a reflective thing because you're reflecting on something and not. But there's also the experience of, you know, in actual life when you could be mm-hmm. an experience and have an experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's, so, meditating still seems like it's kind of intellectual. No. Yeah, meditating, there's different kinds of meditation. You know, one kind of meditation, you are probing, you know, and you might be using thought. But then you want to go beyond thought at the end of it. Okay. But, for example, to realize emptiness. Okay. First, we have to have a correct inferential understanding. Okay. So that's using concept. Does that mean that it's all intellectual? Uh Uh-uh. Because if we could have an actual inference of emptiness, it's going to have incredible powerful force on the mind. You know, even the correct conceptual understandings can really strongly affect the mind. But then, you know, you want to go beyond them. It's like when you're doing a meditation on compassion, the object isn't compassion, the object is simply being. So then the thing is, is it's like you're trying to just fill your whole experience with that. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not like you're probing it, Like it's more like you're becoming it. <laughs> There's two kinds of meditation. One is where you're trying to understand the object. Mm-hmm. The other is where you're trying to transform your mind into a certain experience. Mm-hmm. When you're meditating on emptiness, you're trying to understand and realize that object. Mm-hmm. When you're meditating on bodhicitta or compassion, you're trying to transform your own experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're different. And when you do yeah. the first on emptiness, the thing with the object to be negated, is that like the crux of it? Yeah. Identifying the object of negation is the crux of the emptiness meditation. Because we can't if we can't identify it, then we can't negate it. No. Then uh, we see emptiness, but emptiness of what? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> very, this is the thing I, one thing I guess I did have one question. So, you know, they recommend to bring up a strong experience, you know, especially like an accused of something you haven't done. Right. Okay, that's pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But when you're feeling, I mean, is, I also find that I <clears throat> like to just, when I'm feeling not strong, and it's a very quiet me, and then mm-hmm. looking at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can look at that one, too. Yeah. And then when you do that a sadhana, <coughs> when you let us do, uh, I think it was just last week, mm-hmm. the intersectory analysis, mm-hmm. um, then you said rest in the non-findability. Yeah. When we do the sadhana, is that, we don't necessarily go through the four-point analysis each time. Yeah, when you're doing the deity of emptiness, mm-hmm. if you want to do the four-point analysis, you can do it at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Or, if you've done the four-point analysis at a different time, then you recall the experience of emptiness mm-hmm. there. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. But if, you know, if it helps you to stop at that point and actually do it so to, mm-hmm. to make the experience a little bit more vivid. Because you see, understanding emptiness is really the root of the whole Chenresi meditation because otherwise, you know, you generate yourself as an inherently existent deity. Mm -hmm. And then that's how people build big egos Mm -hmm. because the same feeling they had about their regular self, now they have Chenresi, but Chenresi is really hot stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know... So it's, it's like what pre- prevents that kind of ego coming in when you're doing the meditation is realizing that there's no findable person in there. And then the part where um, <coughs> when the instructions say um, mm-hmm. 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 
Because I remember, like when I first was thinking about it, you know, oh, you're, you're, uh, you know, the wisdom realizing emptiness appears as sound, and it appears as the letters, and it appears as the deity. And I was thinking, this sounds very much, you know, because I had just gotten done studying the samkhyas, you know, and the samkhyas say that there's this primal substance, you know, and everything is created out of this primal substance. And I thought. This sounds very much like the Sankhya's. Your wisdom, bliss, and emptiness is this primal substance and it creates everything. And then I realized, that's, I'm thinking that way because I'm not realizing it's the wisdom of bliss and emptiness. So, that, you know, that wisdom that's realizing emptiness is not going to be holding on to itself as some primal substance or cosmic energy that out of which everything is created yeah it's, it's a non-dual experience so I realized that the way I was thinking about the wisdom was as some inherently existent substance yeah okay you still do it do you do it uh-huh yeah I have a commitment to do it every day and you do that whole... Um, I do it very quickly. <laughs> That's what's nice about retreat is you can do it very slowly. Yeah. It's, it's quite powerful. You know, just just thinking, you know, meditating just on that sound of Omani Pai Hong and imagining the whole universe just reverberating with that sound. You know, there's something so beautiful about that. That's the one deity that if I had any any tiny little sliver of con- conceptualization of Nancy not being there, mm. that one, mm. it just really just loosens up all of my my personality, I just really imagine this vast space with the sound just going through every particle and just yeah. goes on and on. I just get into this really kind of loose and, and more transparent sort yeah. of thinking, you know, and then when we get into the next visualization, I can feel myself getting more concretized again, trying yeah. to... Yeah. That one's probably my favorite one, actually. Yeah. To the sound. For other people. Okay. Then um, I just wanted to share a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'll leave these letters out, but some of the inmates had, had written things, and so uh, Leighton had said, um, "Oh, here it is." He said, um, to all involved in the retreat and behind the scenes, the gave of your time and effort, it has been an honor and blessing to participate in this retreat with you. May you continue to have love and peace as you go your way. That was from Leighton. And then uh, Calvin said some interesting things that I'm sure... Oh, oh, you have experienced. Um, let's see. So far, this has been an up and down experience for me. <laughs> Aside from the logistics of having to incorporate noise as mantra and an overwhelming amount of negativity as opportunity, the practice forced me to deal with more stuff, much of which I thought I had a better handle on. I think it comes down to attachment 
and cultivating the sincere ability to forgive others. My focus uh, or attention on things, ideas, or concepts caused me a lot of opportunity to exist in anger. The practice allowed me to be less ignorant of my attachments, and that put me on the path of realization that ignorance, attachment, anger, and unhappiness are all connected. External things do not happiness make. (laughs) For years I, I slowly discovered this little truth but was often distracted by the in-your-face of prison life. There are so many opportunities to practice compassionate wisdom here that one sometimes has to take a break and just sit. It is like walking into a wonderful candy shop with all the credit in the world. Where do you start? How much is enough? Who do you share it with? Skillful means are necessary to avoid idiot compassion while identifying those who are really in need and doing something about it. Even a, even a smile and being totally present for someone is often sufficient. At least that is what I have come to understand. The Chenrezig practice has made me more sensitive to the connectedness we all share, which renders down to happiness. Happiness free of attachments pride, anger, jealousy, and of course, ignorance. Don't you love it? (laughs) All those things that I thought I had a better handle on, I realized that I'm out of control and don't know a thing about it. (laughs) 